In this episode of Emergence, we'll be hearing from Dr. Deborah Nadal about her experiences in India and her book, Rabies in the Streets. Welcome to the Emergence Podcast, brought to you by MSD Animal Health and hosted by me, Dr. Alistair King, from the International Veterinary Health Department. All thoughts and opinions expressed during this podcast are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the company. I've been travelling for the last couple of weeks, which has been fantastic, a chance to get to see people face-to-face and talk again. But first, this is coming out on World Rabies Day. We've tried to recognise World Rabies Day every year that we've been involved And we think it's really important because it raises the awareness of this disease that we should really be able to get under control. We have tools. We know what's needed. Once again, we've done the Rabies 360 Challenge, and I hope on social media you've seen us on our activities. My challenge this year was reading 360 of Emily Dickinson's poems, which I know sounds strange compared to what I've done in previous years. But I knew I was going to be traveling, knew I had to take suitcases and things. So just having a book that I could read made a lot of sense. And hopefully by the time you're hearing this, I will have read the 360 poems as I planned. What I want to do today is go into a chat with Dr. Deborah Nadal. Deborah has seen rabies, seen the impact, seen what happens in India. She's been there for her PhD. She's really got a good understanding of what is happening on the ground and what drives behaviours around rabies, such as the social impact, the cultural impacts, the religious impacts, all of these issues that change how people see the disease, which means we have to look at individual countries and how do we attack it and solve the problems for these countries rather than one global solution. Let's hear from Deborah, hear what she's got to say. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dr. Deborah Nadal. Deborah is an affiliate researcher for the University of Glasgow and a consultant for the World Health Organization. Most importantly, She published a book, Rabies in the Streets. This was based on her PhD work. And I think it's a really incredible insight into rabies and what we have to do for the future. Deborah, thanks for joining us. Maybe you could give us a bit of a background into how you got involved with rabies first. So, uh, well, my encounter with rabies research was actually very weird and unexpected. I had no idea uh, I would have you know, studied rabies for the next decade or so. I am a medical anthropologist by background. I did a PhD in cultural anthropology. And exactly for that PhD, I had a, I had a PhD project planned for that. So my PhD research at the beginning was meant to be about the human-monkey relationship uh, inside a nomadic tribal group of Eastern India. And then uh, things changed because two Italians were kidnapped in that uh, region by a local guerrilla. It was like two weeks before I had to leave for India to start the fieldwork in that area. And then, uh, of course, there were many practical 
and legal visa-related uh, challenges related to doing fieldwork in that area in that particular moment. So basically, I had to leave for India and uh, trying to find a new PhD topic over there. And so after a bit of traveling and thinking, uh, I was having dinner in, in, a, in a village in the desert. And uh, as it happens, uh, in parts of India, there are many free-roaming animals, especially in that case, that, that night, it was a bull. And he came into the into the backyard where I was having dinner, and suddenly, of course, I didn't I didn't expect to have dinner with a bull looking at me, which is which was a free roaming bull. And then I realized, oh, okay, wow, free roaming animals. I mean, I have lived and traveled in India for quite a lot of time then, and I never realized that I could have studied and and uh, learned more about free roaming animals. So I started to focus a bit on that, do a bit of. Uh, internet research, and then I came to know that India shares a big part of human rabies deaths. So I started to look at, at free roaming animals from the perspective of rabies in a multi-species way, looking at dogs, uh, cows, and, and macaques at the beginning for the PhD thesis, and then I just focused for the postdoc on dogs. I think it's one of the fascinating things about your your book is you've got these different chapters on different sections it's not just dogs and humans that you're focusing on and i think that's really interesting because often when we're talking about rabies we sit around table and we all go well we know the solution we just need to vaccinate dogs and we'll get rid of the disease and in theory that is correct but it's not happening. And then you get to the questions of, well, why isn't it happening? And we talk all about the access to vaccines and the ability to, to do things. But reading your book is, I think it's a real eye-opener because you really tackle the impact of social, cultural, religious, and political inputs into attitudes in rabies in India. What was that like? getting really that deep into everything that was going on? Uh, well, it was a big challenge. And at the beginning, I had no idea where the, where the end of this would be. And I think I, I have not reached the end, of course, because there are still many things to learn. But uh, as far as the book conclusions, so to say, are concerned, uh, initially it was hard to find boundaries to the work, actually, and to field work, because it was every day, it was like discovering something that was not investigated before because paradoxically, even though street animals are everywhere in India, where I worked, which is the mainly the capital city, Delhi, and two cities in Rajasthan, you cannot avoid seeing animals and dogs and wondering what is going on between you know this this relationship that is happening on public spaces all the time. And, and looking at that from the perspective of rabies, it was like, okay, so where does rabies research end and where does the context of this uh, go? And like, really, as I said, setting the boundary was, uh, was the hardest thing to do. And probably I didn't do it too much. So at the end, I managed to put a lot of different insights into the book and into what I, I, I have understood so far about rabies in India. And as you said, yes, it's not just about, you know, vaccinating dogs or making sure that people reach the health uh, facility for, uh, for, for getting uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. It's much more, especially in dog-related rabies. 
because the human side is complicated and there are, of course, social and cultural and religious components in that, for example, uh, traditional healing or faith healing or people not trusting doctors, not trusting vaccines. And we know that about COVID and other uh, vaccine preventable diseases. But then if we look at the, hum- at the animal side of rabies, we see that there is really a lot going on. It's not just vaccinating the dogs. It's how do we define the dogs that we see out there in India? For example, uh, India um, is in a very unique situation compared to uh, other countries in the world, or at least the countries I know of, because in India they have this expression, which is street dogs, which is a legally uh, bounding term. It's not just a way of addressing dogs. Street dog is where the rabies control strategy grounds on. Now what, what we see in India is that, okay, dogs live here, live on the street, they have all the rights to live on the street, they can be uh, taken uh, away from the street to be spayed, neutered and vaccinated, but then they have to be brought back. And so, and then there are sections of society saying, okay, we should also feed them, feed them in great number. So there is a, really a lot uh, going on in how people see these dogs and want to approach them. And uh, there is a lot of differences and, and sometimes conflicts in whether and how people see dogs as a problem or not. I know there's been quite a bit of work on that, the the street dogs on how people interact and how we can improve some of those interactions as well, which is very important. You mentioned India being unique. I think that's very critical. Your book shows this real depth of how the particular situation in Delhi and everything that's going on there is interacting and influencing the continuation of this disease. But that's this bubble of Delhi. It's going to be different in in Africa if we go to Kenya or somewhere we go to Zimbabwe. There's different things going on. It seems to me we really need to investigate all of these different areas in the same way as you have with Delhi and really getting deep into these to understand the culture. Uh, well, yes, definitely. It takes time. Sometimes it's considered the main drawback of this kind of research. It takes time, but luckily there are ways to do this in a faster way. So we should not give up on exploring more the context and the culture and, and the religion and how this um, has an impact on, on rabies. But yeah, definitely we need to understand more uh, about uh, really the very little things that we maybe give, take for granted because we, we think about the place where we live or where uh, other rabies research done. But when we think about little things, like, for example, uh, being able or being willing to uh, put a leash or a rope on a dog and, and walk with the dog towards a rabies vaccination point, maybe walk two miles and reach that place and be in a space with a lot of other people and a lot of other dogs around, we, we may think that that is easy and everybody can do that and everybody wants to do that, but it's not always the case for, for, for many reasons. I definitely we need to know more about what those reasons are. Otherwise, we are just you know, going to plan strategies that cannot be fully delivered or they can be delivered, but the impact will not be the one we expect because people are happy with, with doing things in that way. Mm. We often talk about, well, we usually talk about the deaths from rabies. One of the things you mentioned in your book is that two-thirds, in Delhi, two-thirds of the cases are male and they're the breadwinners for families. How do you see rabies impacting 
outside of the the pure deaths, how is it impacting families and and affecting life in in India? Oh well, that is a great question, and unfortunately. Um Data on rabies in India are not always fully reliable, as it happens in other in other endemic countries, of course, because rabies surveillance is already quite challenging. And if you are doing that in a country that already is facing many challenges, it's it's even more complicated to get a clear picture of what happens. But if we can just think about the problem of rabies and the impact on families, uh, well, yes, it affects men more than women. In many, many families, both in urban India and, and rural India, uh, men are really um, the ones that provide most of the income to the family. And so that is the first component of the problem that we, we see. And so it means, you know, taking time off uh, to go to the hospital for vaccination, for example, for the shots that people need. So maybe people may be reluctant to waste a day of work, which means a day of uh, lost wage. Because people who work on a daily, uh, you know, wage rate, whenever they don't show up for work, they lose the, the income for that day. And this goes, for example, in Delhi and in all uh, Indian big cities. Uh, if we think about the people who live on uh, on the street, on pavements, many of those have jobs that are, for example, uh, driving uh, rickshaws around or collecting garbage. If they do that, they get the wage. And another way we see the impact on rabies uh, on families, uh, it's not through the human side angle, but I would say through the livestock side angle. So I'm now talking more about rural and the rural areas, because uh, we know that uh, rabies has an impact on, on the livestock sector as well. Uh, it's still sometimes hard to, to understand how much that, how big that impact is, but it's there. And so again, it's um, it has a huge impact on, on families who rely on a couple of, of livestock animals um, in, in the countryside in terms of uh, calling the vet or uh, seeing the animal die because of rabies. Um, it really has uh, potential to really uh, destabilize and destroy uh, the family balance, um, e- economic. Uh, balance of families for months, I would say, after the, the accident. And then, of course, there is the psychological impact of the disease, which is not just about the victim, but about the entire family, because it's a shocking disease to see. So um, there, there is a, an emotional component attached to that. And then you see the, the same um, emotional side of rabies has an impact on the way people relate to the dogs. Um, on the street, because if, of course, if you have experienced a trauma, then you 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 try to cope with that, and uh, that may change the way you deal with dogs, for example, and this may increase the possibility for you to to be exposed to dog bites if you interact with with, the, for example, dogs that you know, don't know in a way that is not uh, proper and a way that may lead to dog bites. So it's really like a chain effect. That's really interesting, just thinking of that cycle just continuing to drive itself. People see rabies, so they're scared of dogs, so they don't interact with dogs properly, which leads to more bites, so then you get more cases of rabies, which means people are more scared, and you just got that cycle going on, really looking at how we get in there and break that cycle. I think it's as, impor- as important as just getting in and vaccinating all the dogs because we need to do the vaccinations. No question that's going to reduce the disease, but it 
it's only a short-term fix. You're going to have to keep going in every time to vaccinate. We need to get that change in behavior to lead to the long, long-term changes in what's actually happening with this disease, as I can, that seems to be how I see it. Absolutely, yeah. We need to think about the, the, the short term. And as you said, uh, well, first of all, PP for people, and that is really just a quick fix, a life-saving uh, fix. Then we have dog vaccination, which uh, provides a certain uh, coverage for, for a certain time, but you need to keep going. You cannot stop until you, know, you have really reached a point where you have all your uh, good surveillance data telling you, okay, uh, now the, the situation is stable and uh, you can take a breath now. But be be still alert and keep uh, keep doing things uh, as as they should be done. But in the really long term and uh, context wise term, I would say uh, it's important to to speak more about rabies. And I would say that engaging children with the targeted uh, awareness campaigns through schools, uh, I think it's really the way to go to make sure that everybody knows about rabies and everybody knows facts about rabies and how to deal with that because there is a lot of sometimes confusion in what people know about rabies and how to, for example, manage dog bites. And again, this is another sad part of rabies, I would say. It's really a difficult disease to, to deal with if you if you look at it from the perspective of, uh, of the victim or of the family of the victim because symptoms can show up weeks or even months usually after exposure and then the, when when they become um, well evident uh, there is nothing that can be done and, I mean in the period between exposure and, and when the symptoms become become evident, uh, people may may think, okay, uh, this is not rabies because I have been bitten six months ago and the dog look, look, looked weird, but I'm good. Uh, so when rabies maybe comes, they will think about something different happening or another exposure. So it's really difficult to, you know, to develop a clear understanding of what the disease is unless you really have a doctor or a veterinarian giving you the details of what happened and how that how was that possible I always think this when I, when I read about stories of of dog bites that lead to rabies in India and I believe it's really a shock and you really feel desperate and like I don't understand what is going on and when you start to understand what is going on you, there is nothing more you can do so and this probably helps uh, um, homemade remedies to be to be taken by people because they say okay, it worked for that person. That person was bitten by a dog that looked weird, so maybe it was rabies. But then the person I don't know took some uh, put some cow dung in the wound in the in the wound or took some herbs, and then you see the person is fine. So I can do the same thing if that happens to me. So I think we need to to create more awareness about about what what the reality of rabies is and going through children. I guess that is a long term uh, benefit. I'm a great fan of for education. There's work being done in Haiti in the schools that shows we can make a difference. And that's bringing in the education and the science, which is important. But your your work is definitely showing it's not just that. Because we can educate and bring in the science, but if that doesn't fit with cultural or religious understandings, then all that happens is you've got got those two things clashing together. And it's not our place to go in and change people's cultures or people's religions or anything. That's a 
that's not the approach. So is it possible working with with cultures that have evolved around rabies already? How do we work with that to change that in the future? Oh, well, this is, this is the question, I would say. We can think that, okay, let's change culture, let's change, you know, what, what people think about something, and then we can start uh, anew. That is never going to happen, and it won't be the way to go uh, from an ethical perspective as well. So uh, probably uh, I would say finding um, a common ground and trying to explain rabies from, from the perspective of what we know through science. And then um, asking people what they know, what they think about rabies from, from their perspective. Uh, so sometimes we see that many rabies studies are done through knowledge, attitude and practices um, surveys, which are great for many other things and, and still can work for, for rabies research. But very often these uh, knowledge, the knowledge part of, of these surveys is really about uh, how many shots do you need to take if you are beaten, or uh, which of these things will you put on your bone if you are beaten? So it's it's really checking how much local people know about scientific knowledge, rather than asking them, don't worry about what I I know about rabies. Tell me what you know about rabies, and you can really learn things from a new perspective. Maybe you can learn the local words that people use to refer to the disease or to the symptoms, and besides from the language, you you learn what the what the idea is about how dogs come up with, with rabies, how, how they transmit it to, uh, to people and what can be done to, to manage bites. And you put that into, into a picture and you understand, ah, okay, this makes sense. So people, maybe they go to, to the temple, to the church, to the mosques, wherever they go, uh, because maybe there is a god in their religion that is somehow linked to dogs. So they want to, to seek protection from that deity. And you really put things in context and you understand what uh, where the gaps are, but not just gaps to fill, where, like, uh, I would say where rivers are, that you can uh, build a bridge upon to, like, to put together scientific knowledge and, and, what, and how people approach rabies in, in the area where you are working. I think one, what you're really looking at here is the difference between people's knowledge and people's behavior. And you see this in all kinds of things. If you go and stand outside a supermarket and ask people about would they buy food that's high welfare, would they buy they consider high welfare, would they buy food that comes from sustainable backgrounds, all of this. You you ask people and you do the survey and they'll give some really positive answers about everything they'll do. That's very different to if you stop them when they come out of the supermarket and go through their trolley and see what they actually bought and i think that's sounds a very similar thing you're saying yes we go in and we ask people what their knowledge about rabies is but that doesn't tell us how they're going to act in the future definitely it's it's normal to just provide a very sterile explanation when you ask them a yes or no question or when you just catch them before entering the supermarket with such a question that may obviously lead to people saying, yes, of course, I want healthy food and, and all the things, you know. But uh, when, when you do that in a, in a different moment, you may come up with a, with a different understanding. And especially you can understand why they did something different from what they said they would have done. Uh, for example, in buying food that is not as healthy as they, they wanted uh, it to be. And so the why is really where you see the real life of people 
um, in, in the moment of a dog bite, when that happens, um, people may, may behave in a, in a different way and have other um, explanations. And moreover, consider that it's not just what one person knows about rabies and what to do in case of a dog bite. It's what the family members say. It's what it what the, the neighbors say. Uh, you know, in in panic-related situations, uh, maybe you, you you just don't take decisions on your own, but you 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 have your family and friends giving ideas. So you may maybe you say, okay, yeah, let's let's do this. Um, you you are more vulnerable, and of course, so it's uh, especially in, in in some settings like India, where families really are the core of, of social life. It's not that you take your decision alone and you do uh, whatever you want in many circumstances. You are just pushed toward a be- towards a behavior, but, but, but by, by local knowledge and tradition. I've seen you refer to interspecies camaraderie. I was wondering if you want to explain a little bit about what you mean by that. Uh, I noticed that during fieldwork, I very often came across uh, two words that are commonly used in the management of, of street animals and street dogs in India. And these terms are love and compassion, usually. So you see NGOs uh, using really these two terms a lot. And you see uh, flyers promoting love, promoting, con- promoting uh, compassion in newspapers. Uh, really, the, the debate is often articulated as a yes or no situation or love or hate situation. So do you love street dogs? Do you hate street dogs? So people tend to take sides and then the conflict, of course, increase, increases. And uh, and I found that, that those two words were not really being very helpful. And probably they were, they were even being you know, a trick, tricky, impractical, and probably also uh, counterproductive within the, the, the debate around street animals. I thought, okay, it's not that I need to love a dog or, or hate a dog or the dog species in general to, to be worried about rabies, to be concerned about rabies in humans, in animals, in dogs. I don't necessarily need to love animals to do that. And so I, I, try, to, I try to see whether another term was there to help people guide their actions and their ideas about one health and in this, in this example about rabies elimination. And I thought that camaraderie was uh, probably a, a more fitting uh, term to use. It, the, the English word camaraderie comes from French, that comes from Latin, and basically it means uh, camera, chamber. And uh, so the, the person, the, the comrade is considered usually a friend, a companion, a buddy, or a, a partner with, with whom we, we spend time and we share an experience. And I thought it was leading me uh, towards the right direction about, okay, there is a person and there, there, there is a dog and they can be somehow uh, comrades in, in finding a solution to, to tackle rabies in humans and in animals. And so then camaraderie came in as, as handy because you know, it's not an emotion. So it's not that you need to love, it's not that, that you need to have a like a giving subject, like a person giving love or giving compassion to a dog, and so be motivated to do something for that dog. It's like a relationship, like a social relationship. Okay, we are in this world, we live on the same street, or, or we share, the, the, we live on the same village, and there is rabies in this village, and we as people can like team up with dogs to find a solution to that. It can work really well as a as an alternative to think about 
how people can uh, can do well for animals, not necessarily loving them. For example, now we often in, in the last years we often uh, heard about the problem of bees and bee populations uh, reducing in numbers, and we all know the the, the possible uh, impact of that. What do we think about this problem? Do I want to to make sure that bees do well and uh, and thrive as a population, I, I say yes to myself, but not necessarily because I love bees. I mean, I wouldn't say I am a bee lover person, but still, I feel that I want definitely to make sure that bees are safe. So I think the same can be applied to basically every every um, multi-species relation with a dog, with a bee, or maybe with, I don't know, a forest. I think that maybe is more, you know, less emotionally connoted it's more like rational and, and socially uh, connoted and maybe it can work i am i am a bee lover i i would love to be a bee beekeeper unfortunately where i live we have bears and the bears are going to love the bees even more than i would so i actually really like the term interspecies camaraderie because to me i think it's a really nice way of expressing basically one health and people don't quite get one health. What do we mean? Interspecies camaraderie makes it much more sense. Makes sense to me. It's about us all being together and working. So I, I like it as a term. I think it's great. Listening to you reminds me of something I often approach. Something I use to approach a lot of projects, which is the five whys, and it comes from Six Sigma and training in in that as well. That. You have to ask why five times to really drill down to what's what's causing something to happen. And you if you just ask the first why, you get a very surface answer, but then you've got to ask why are they doing that and what why why is that and keep going down. It seems rabies is very similar to that, and I suspect that often we're not getting as deep into all of the cultural aspects in the background that we need to. Yeah, definitely. I, I have recently uh, come across professionally with this uh, five wise method. And I think that definitely we should apply it more, work in an area to really understand why and what is going on and why things that should happen in a way, because on paper, they look like, you know, cause effect. But in, in, in practice, things don't go in, in such a linear way. And there might be the reasons that are very far away or quite far away from rabies itself. Uh, and these reasons may, may be having an, an impact on, on, on rabies. Because, you know, again, it's not just a disease, it's a, like catching a cold. It's really about how people live in the environment, how they live alongside animals. So it's much more complicated than that. So I'm going to really put you on the spot for the end of this. Are we going to eradicate rabies and why? Uh, well, eliminating uh, dog-mediated human rabies. Yes, I think if possible, on paper it is, we have all the tools we need. We just need basically uh, political will. Uh, we know that we need more co commitment, sustained commitment, because we know that mass dog vaccination takes seven, eight, nine, ten years to see results and, and for the results to be stable and to be, you know, trusted upon. Definitely we need uh, involvement from the veterinary sector because they are the ones uh, probably leading uh, the one health approach uh, towards eliminating uh, dog-mediated human rabies. 
and then awareness and engaging with communities uh, probably much more than what we are doing right now. Uh, because probably where we are now slowing down or progress that we are doing is in not involving um, enough with local communities. But yeah, I, I think we can. Good. That's good to know with your experience that you still believe that as well. I, I think we can. Then we've got to get into a lot of these areas you're exploring as well to really work out how we make long-term changes and have a long-term impact. But I, I believe we can as well, and it's a worthwhile thing to keep fighting for. Thank you very much, Deborah. It's been great chatting to you. Really appreciate it. And I urge anyone to interested in rabies to read your book because it is an eye-opener in just how everything is interacting together. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Happy to, to be here today. Before that chat with Deborah, I said I'd been traveling the last couple of weeks. One of those meetings was with the Global Alliance for Livestock Fishing Medicine, GalvMed, and their annual meeting in Edinburgh. We were founder members of GalvMed, and I'm, pr I'm proud that we are still involved. GalvMed is about trying to improve the accessibility of medicines in Africa and in Asia. Done some really good things to make that happen. And looking very much at the network and how we build that up. We spent a lot of time talking about small ruminants and how we can really improve that side. Then I moved, then I moved over to Glasgow. We do a number of projects with the University of Glasgow. And we're able to catch up on, especially our foot and mouth project, foot and mouth disease in Tanzania. Again, where we're looking at understanding the communities and working with those to help them understand the disease and help how, help them understand how we can make a difference. That team have come up with some really interesting things. I think especially when we see how different serotypes travel like waves across the country, you can follow them and see where they're going. And it tends to be one serotype at a time, which is really changing how we think about vaccination. Hopefully we're going to get more of that coming out soon. And then down to London and a few other places so we could talk about rabies. Rabies is never far from our minds. We're always looking at what we're doing with it. And we were talking about how we can make more of an impact. How can we change people's awareness? Part of what World Rabies Day is about. We're looking at the advocacy. How do we raise the profile and raise the priority of the disease so people think about actually treating it? and think about how we go about eliminating this disease. So it's been a really good couple of weeks traveling. And I think you will see some of the results of some of those meetings coming out in the next couple of months to the next half a year. Really looking forward to sharing those with you. And that's all from this edition of the Emergence Podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'll speak to you again soon. And in the meantime, I wish you well. Goodbye.